Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and Ewan Christie. Welcome to episode 36 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and also subscribe to the show on YouTube and SoundCloud as well. And most important of all, please sign up for our newsletter. You can get updates when new episodes drop and other show information at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, what's shaking? Well, Cameron, my uh, my home's a bit of a construction zone right now. Still? <laughs> we're, we're, still, yeah, it's becoming a bit of a uh, one of those renovation nightmares that you you read about. Uh, you know, and really this was all innocent enough, and I understand we're, we're not alone in doing this, that there's been a, a, a boom in sort of home renovations during the pandemic because of course everybody's sort of stuck at home or they're working from home and they're they're trying to get their home into uh you know a little a cozier state and that was kind of our intention as well we were doing a bunch of work in our in our living room and uh doing some painting and tearing up floors and uh and then of course we ended up in lockdown and that's resulted in obviously a bunch of delays for 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 safety reasons, which is fine, but, um, yeah, yeah we're uh, horrible, a bit, of, bit of a gong show over here. Horrible time for that to happen. Yeah. Cause you've got nowhere to go to get out of the, out of the construction zone. Um, here, you know, you and it's still, uh, yeah, we're run under big time lockdown. I mean, I mentioned it a bit last week, but like, you know, I'm, I'm working from home. Uh, a lot of people in Hong Kong are back to working from home. And it, it's so strange because even, you know, small little Christmas gatherings that people had planned are all kind of being nixed now because there's limits on, you know, how many people can gather in one place indoors. And so um, it's changed a lot. I mean, the good news is we're, we're around 100 new cases a day. And again, for Hong Kong, that's a huge number. Uh, we've been in single digits most of the time throughout the entire pandemic, but um, it is spreading. And I think it's a impact of, you know, the weather's changing here. We're down to like 20 degrees. <laughs> so, you know, that has an impact too. You know, every, every week, Cameron, I, I think about <laughs> our listeners, some of whom I know are in Hong Kong, but a lot of whom I know are, are elsewhere, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom. Uh, and they must just be shaking their heads whenever they hear, they talk, hear you talk about, um, you know, your frigid winter temperatures <laughs> over there of 20 degrees centigrade. Um, yeah, nobody's giving you sympathy. Everybody's just shaking their head like, who is this guy? What's he talking about? <laughs> it is one of the benefits of living over here, no doubt. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. 
You know, I know we are getting close to Christmas, but uh, there's still some issues in the workplace. I, I know the last week's topic, Ewan, on the uh, holiday parties was, was a bit of a big hit based on some feedback that we got. Uh, but I know December is not really a slow time for lawyers, is it? Well, no. I mean, I guess one of the, the, the few good things about being an employment lawyer, Cam, is that what we do is relatively recession proof mm-hmm. in good times and bad times. Employers and employees need need advice. And uh, this year is certainly no different. I am glad, though, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't know if we can take any credit for it, but you're, in the opening, you're talking about different parties being nixed. I, I hope that that was uh, after listening to our episode, Cam, <laughs> about, you know, <laughs> people thought, well, maybe a holiday party for, for the office isn't such a good idea this year. Maybe we should just put that on hold. So um, I don't know if we can take any credit for it, but I, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, that's fine with me. I think it's probably more the Hong Kong government, but hey, we can take the credit. Well, let's hope the Hong Kong government is, is, is listening, Cameron. Uh, this week, I, I wanted to talk about, and this, this has come up um, a lot for me in the last couple of weeks, but this week in particular, and it's 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 just cause for termination. And I know we've talked about this a number of times on the show, Cam, the distinction between an employer who terminates an employee on a for cause basis and then on a without cause basis. So to just sort of talk briefly about the, the fundamental difference there, when you terminate an employee on a without cause basis, it's exactly what it sounds like. You aren't alleging any wrongdoing on the part of the employee. And an employer has the right to terminate an employee on that basis at any time for any reason or no reason whatsoever, provided um, the termination isn't discriminatory in nature. And again, we've also talked about in the past what that means, right? That we can't just throw the word discrimination around willy nilly, that it has to be tied to a prohibited ground of discrimination under human rights legislation. So something like um, sex or gender, uh, race, creed, these sorts of issues, disability. Um, But when you're terminating an employee on a for cause or just cause basis, effectively what you're saying is that there has been some serious misconduct or, you know, neglect of duty and competence, something of a a very, very high standard cam that the employee has committed that justifies terminating that employee without providing them any reasonable notice of the termination of their employment, any severance payments. And in some cases, um, the employee can be um, prevented from even accessing employment insurance or unemployment insurance benefits. Okay. So yeah, I I mean, I want to try and make this clear because I know people hear these terms a lot, sort of termination with cause and without cause. Termination basically being fired and then without cause being like what you said, it's just they can, they can let, usually employers can let anybody go at any time for, for any reason. But, and I just want to make sure I'm clear on this too. If that happens, if there is no, no cause, there has to be some sort of compensation or severance. Is that correct? And then if it is with cause, then it's a little more complicated. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you, 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 you got it. Yes. If it's without cause, they have to provide them with reasonable notice of the termination of the employment or pay in lieu thereof. Right. So, so we're saying, Cameron, um, I love you, but uh, things just aren't working out between us and we're going to have to let you go. Um, you've been with us for X number of years. You make X number of dollars. Uh, you occupy this title or position. And based on all these factors and a number of others, we've decided that you are entitled to 
six months reasonable notice of the termination of your employment, for example. And the employer at that point can provide the employee with working notice, what we call working notice, where they would say to you, Cameron, you know, we're letting you go, but we would like you to continue to to show up for work every day as you always have for the next six months. And then at the conclusion of that six month period, your employment will cease. That's option one. And then option two is pay in lieu of that notice. So they sit down and they say, we're going to give you six months reasonable notice pay, but today will be the last day of your employment. So, you know, pack up your pack up your office and um, and, and that's it. So in my own experience, um, it's usually the second option, at least that I've seen in terms of employees being let go and they can leave that that day. Um, and, and are often escorted out because obviously there's some sensitivities. And, you know, I, I worked at radio stations previously as well. And there's obviously a huge concern over somebody who's just been let go and then going on the air <laughs> right after that. So uh, they don't let them hang around for the one or two months uh, and, and pay them in lieu. It w- would you say that that's probably the more common approach because of the risk involved? Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, the, the majority of cases you will see pay in lieu of notice as opposed to working notice. I mean, there are some advantages to to working notice, Cam. I mean, really what those are, number one, if you have a good employee, um, you know, sometimes it's just a corporate reorganization and it really is nothing personal. It really has nothing to do with the conduct um, or work ethic of the employee. And you want that employee to be able to save face on some level. So working notice can be a good option there where you can allow them to continue to show up. And effectively, you know, through through working with the employer, the employee can craft their own narrative as to why they're leaving, right? Perhaps they've found another job and they can kind of convey that message to their colleagues as, as, as they see fit, um, done in cooperation with the employer. So that's one of the advantages. Now, one of the other strategic advantages that employers will often use um, and, you know, this is is not perhaps the most innocent of approaches. And that is that they hope and trust that an employee who's been put on working notice will not want to remain at the company and that they will effectively quit prior to the expiration of that working notice period. And in doing so, they would effectively forfeit the remainder of that notice period, which, you know, can let the employer off the hook in some regard in terms of um, further severance entitlements that that employee may otherwise be entitled to. But the flip side of the coin, and to your point, is that when you give an employee working notice, things certainly can go sideways, right? Obviously, you're not going to have an employee that's showing up with any sort of, you know, zest or enthusiasm for for performing their duties day in and day out. Um, And you leave yourself exposed to things like, you know, just general sabotage or misconduct or, um, you know, really just bringing bad blood into the office each and every day that can really be a disservice to the employer, which is why, and to your point, in most cases, we see employers providing pay in lieu of notice rather than uh, a working notice period. Yeah. And, and just to dive into this a bit, I mean, in, in, in my career, even, I mean, the process of letting an employee go is often not pleasant for any party involved in it, actually. Like even, even for me, like I would honestly, and I say this a hundred percent 
from the heart. I would much rather be let go than have a conversation with somebody else telling them they have to be let go because it's not, it's not a pleasant experience at all. Um, but I, I know that some people will often say that it's, it's kind of dehumanizing in a way. Um, and I mean, I've seen, again, in my own career, I worked in financial services for a while and in radio. I mean, people, once they are given the news, they are usually ex- escorted out by security. Now, I don't know if this is common in other industries, but it really does revolve around the risk of information disclosure or of sabotage of some way, um, you know, access to email to everyone in the company and all of that sort of stuff would have to be shut down right away. So it's a bit of a process to go through this. And if someone sees it happening to somebody else, it does feel dehumanizing um, and it's rough, but I think it is important for people to understand that it's not meant to humiliate the person being let go. Um, it is really just to protect their own interests and, and just make sure that, that it goes as cleanly as possible. Well, absolutely. And I mean, really it's that, that runs contrary to the employer's best interest. I mean, you want to be dealing with these situations in the most um, humane, considerate and professional means possible, right? Because yeah, it does. I mean, if, if, if colleagues see one of their, one of their colleagues being escorted out with a box in hand, um, and security guards present. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're not going to react particularly well to that. So, you know, the, the <laughs> they're, procedure, yeah, they're not going to say you're going to lunch. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, the policy and, and, and procedures of, of the employer in this regard really are quite critical in terms of how they do this. So it does have to be thought through and it really should be done in consultation with with legal counsel and with, you know, internal HR reps um, to really think the process through in terms of how can we most effectively do this with, you know, at the same time, minimizing the impact on other workers that are here. Um, you know, you've got to try and keep some level of morale up at, at the company. That's always important and, and critical for, for the survival of, of your company. Um, so yeah, it, it really behooves employers to do this in, in a professional and respectful manner. Right. And I mean, is, is this an issue now you and it, because we're at the end of the year, like I know, uh, again, in my, in my own career, I've seen a lot of layoffs sort of in December or no, late November, December, because it is, it is year end. It's kind of a rough time from a Western point of view, just because it's Christmas. Uh, but in Hong Kong, that's kind of the, the routine is, is, is end of year dismissals. Um, but I mean, what is your advice for, for, for employers sort of managing these kinds of issues? Yeah. Generally speaking, I advise if you can wait, until the new year, wait until the new year. Um, and again, we're just talking about the broader implications of the, the terminations. If you terminate a number of employees immediately before the holidays, it really doesn't reflect particularly well on, on you as an employer, um, that you would do that to someone immediately before the holidays. Now, you know, the argument follows, well, is it really that much better to, to let them go when they immediately return from the holidays? I mean, probably not, I suppose, but again, it's just the optics. It looks really, really bad. So, you know, generally my counsel is if you can wait, uh, you know, wait, just, just hold off a few more weeks. And this is something employees do as well, because again, in certain industries, end of the year is often bonus time. Uh, and so people wait until they've, you know, received, received that bonus and they go into the new year and then they resign, you know, once everything's come through. So, I mean, at least in, in, in this market here, there's usually a lot of sort of job openings at the beginning of the year. Uh, and a lot of people looking for work as well. It's kind of a popular time for that, that sort of thing to happen. 
Yeah, it is. Now, of course, 2021 is going to be unique because, you know, a lot of small businesses have been just crippled by by the pandemic. And we're, we're seeing all kinds of implications to employers and employees um, that sort of defy the typical run of the mill experience that we might see from from year to year. So there are going to be those those additional challenges. Um, but, you know, one of the things I wanted to get to, Cam, was was that just cause for discharge, right? The, these situations mm-hmm. where those employers have alleged that serious misconduct. Um, and really, you know, what we're talking about here is that the employer, I mean, it's a really high threshold and for good reason, right, Cam? I mean, you're effectively saying, hey, employee, we're letting you go. We're not giving you any reasonable notice. We're not giving you pay in lieu. We're not giving you your termination and severance entitlements, um, statutory entitlements. You're you're gone the end and and that's it so it, it's a very very high threshold to meet as an employer like i mean effectively what an employer has to demonstrate is a whatever misconduct they're alleging um, had occurred that it did in fact actually occur and that that misconduct was so significant that the employment contract between the parties has been fundamentally breached so we're talking a pretty high threshold to establish here so you know again my my, my counsel to, to employees in these situations is seek legal advice. And, you know, often employees, Cam, are really reluctant mm-hmm. to seek counsel following a just cause termination. I mean, they're embarrassed or they're ashamed. And that's really to their detriment because there's a very, very good chance that the employer never met that extremely high threshold of just cause in the first place. Yeah, I, we had touched on this before a little bit. I mean, I, I do think often employees, especially if they're younger or if there's a, a big power imbalance, um, that, that yeah, there is that kind of fear. And so, yeah, getting a lawyer seems like, you know, would there be, you know, implications of that on your own career, your own reputation, uh, things like that? Because obviously your, your mind moves forward to trying to get that next job and you don't want to have any sort of uh, black marks on your on your record uh, as being difficult in terms of sort of a legal dispute or, or bringing a legal case forward. But I mean, they should. I think that really is the advice. I think in most cases, um, they should because there are there are laws around this and you do have rights. Um, and even if you're let go, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of it. So it's worth exploring at the very least talking to somebody to see if there's anything else that can be done. Yeah, of course. Well, and, and I mean, and also was the misconduct was it connected to a, a disability or a prohibited ground of discrimination? And this is something that employees don't necessarily turn their minds to. And, you know, this is an issue in, in Canada. It's an issue in a number of the states in the U.S. Um, where, you know, employees aren't or employers aren't entitled to terminate an employee for an issue that's related to a prohibited ground of discrimination. Notably, you know, a, a disability, for example, if an employee is unable, for example, for example, to come to work because of a, you know, they were in a, a car accident and, you know, have a particular physical ailment that precludes them or prevents them from being able to come to the office. An employer can't turn around and terminate an employee on that basis. I mean, on the basis of that disability. So again, these sorts of issues aren't necessarily things that employees have turned their minds to. So all the more reason to seek out counsel to get a sense as to whether or not that threshold for just cause has been met. Because, you know, I got to tell you, more often than not, um, the employees that I meet with, when I when I sort of break it down and I look at the evidence, 
um, in terms of what's been provided from the employers. And often it's it's not very much. That threshold hasn't been met. And those employees are entitled to reasonable notice. And that would mean, you know, their termination and severance entitlements, which can often be particularly with with older long term service employees can be a significant chunk of change. And I can see where this is where things really do get complicated because there's no, or at least I assume there's no sort of clear definition of what just cause is, or at least not in a way where you would say A, B, C, and D are just are just cause that you can dismiss somebody, but you know uh, E, F, and G are not. Um, so there is a, a subjective view of these issues too. So I can see why there would be some debate over them. But I mean, you and when you talk about what just cause is, I think you said something like it, it broke the contract or it was some sort of, uh, it was a big enough event to sort of render the contract uh, obsolete or something like that. But I mean, how can you best yeah, describe fundamentally, it? fundamentally breached, right? Fundamentally right. breached. What does that mean in like real terms? If you can explain <laughs> Well, well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. It, it is, it is difficult and it can be subjective. And, you know, the courts have sort of articulated sort of a, you know, kind of a, a textbook definition. I mean, the Ontario Court of Appeal, I won't go into the definition of the court for the simple reason that it, you know, it, it, it is overly technical and, and sort of, uh, sort of legalese, but I mean, yeah, we're serious misconduct, habitual neglect of duty, incompetence, Conduct incompatible with the employee's duties or prejudicial to the employer's business, willful disobedience to the employer's orders in a matter of substance. I mean, these are sort of the hallmarks of just cause. But to your point, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And this is where things do get very, very complicated and very gray very quickly, where, you know, an employer is alleging, well, we think that this has met that threshold. And of course, the employee and employees counsel is saying, yeah, I don't think so. Um, And that sort of brings me, Cam, to to some things that employers can do if they are trying to prove cause, because I can tell you there are, are no shortage of employees that or employers that go about this in really just the worst kind of way. So, you know, the first thing that you can do as an employer, and we've also talked about this in other contexts on the show before, Cam, is make sure everything is adequately paper trailed. Paper trail the file. There should be some, you know, progressive discipline, including, you know, prior written warnings or sanctions or penalties that establishes a pattern of misconduct, right? If you're trying to allege that you've got an employee who's been with your company for 20 years and makes one sort of fundamental error, and then you turn around and terminate them for just cause, the likelihood of that standing up is going to be slim to nil um, for the simple fact that they've got 20 years of experience under their belt with the company where their performance has been exemplary. So you really want to try and paper trail and establish a pattern of poor behavior. So employers can kind of think of this almost like they're a prosecution in the sense that they're going to need to have a very sound case with evidence and documentation in order to prove their case for this to, to go through in, in, in the manner they wish. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and even when they do paper trail a cam, it, that's, that's not necessarily a home run. You know, I had a, I had a case 
recently where it was an, an employer had alleged just cause and I was representing the employee. And there was an established pattern of, of misconduct on the part of the employee. But then there was this large gap where the performance of the employee improved and there weren't any issues. And then there was a subsequent issue of misconduct. But again, that subsequent issue of misconduct or example of misconduct had followed a long period of really good performance. And, you know, the, when the employer attempted to sort of allege just cause, um, it was very easy to sort of turn to the paper trail and acknowledge and recognize, well, wait a minute, we've got a long gap here where this employee has been doing a fantastic job. Um, and that really compromised the employer's ability to rely on the prior examples um, as just cause for termination. So, I, you know, I bring that example up, Cam, just to show you just how high of a threshold mm-hmm. we're talking about and how difficult this threshold can be to meet. Um, you know, one of the other things that can be really, really helpful for the employer, and we talked about this in, in episode 27. In fact, we dedicated, you know, an entire segment in episode 27 to it is the performance improvement plan, right? Again, another fantastic way for employers to paper trail the misconduct of the employee over a prolonged period of time, because, you know, any good performance improvement plan should have sort of check in points, right? Where we'll, we'll check back with you after three months to see if there's been improvement. And then after six months and then after nine months um, to really try and establish and maintain that, that paper trail for the purposes of alleging just cause if the, the conduct of the employee and, and performance doesn't improve. Right. And, and this is a tip to employees that if you're put on a performance improvement plan, that should get your attention. <laughs> that likely means that they are building a case. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but I think um, uh, an employee improvement plan is not something that happens. Uh, it's not an easy thing to just throw together for somebody. I think it does it does carry some weight and that there's a serious enough problem with that employee that they're formalizing a process around that improvement. Uh, so it should be a red flag to employees for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, another great thing employers can do if you have, you know, let's let's talk about a situation where maybe you have an employee who comes forward and alleges that they've been harassed or discriminated against by this particular employee. And really what we're dealing with is a he said, she said situation. Um, It can be very, very difficult to sort of establish just cause in this situation. But one of the things that an employer should do rather than sort of a knee jerk reaction and turning around and terminating that employee on the basis of these, these allegations is investigate interview other employees and try and find out if there's a pattern of behavior here or misconduct um, that demonstrates that this was not an isolated case, not an isolated incident, and that this employee has habitually been exhibiting this kind of bad behavior for, you know, a number of weeks, months, or years. And that, again, can really strengthen the paper trail that the employer is trying to establish in terminating that employee for just cause. Right. Yep. Good advice. Yeah. And to that point that, that, you know, workplace investigation cam, again, we've talked about this before as well. I mean, really have to make sure that it's, it's unbiased. We can't have some internal, you know, HR rep who we know is effectively in the back pocket of the employer conducting an investigation where they're just going to rubber stamp, um, 
termination for just cause. There really needs to be, you need to ensure that there is no apprehension of bias in the investigation, that the allegations are brought to the attention of the employees so that they have an opportunity to to respond thoroughly to whatever the allegations are, that they're put before them. And this is another huge mistake that employers often make when they terminate employees for just cause. You know, they they bring them in, they say, we're letting you go for just cause, um, you know, for willful misconduct or harassment or whatever the issue may be. And they haven't presented them with any of the evidence. They haven't established a paper trail of bad behavior. They haven't given the employee an opportunity to respond to the allegations. And when you do that, you're really effectively asking to be sued as an employer. And you're walking into all kinds of trouble that you don't necessarily need to invite. So really, you know, dot your I's, cross your T's and and make sure you're doing this properly. This is the one area where I mean, I'm with you on everything you've said kind of up until this one only. And, and I agree with you on this point, too, only that there's um, I think it's not always the best way forward for the company. It really depends on what what happened and all the context uh, around it, because and we did touch on this when we talked about sort of workplace investigations. Um, Absolutely, a third party gives it much more credibility, and I understand that from a, a legal perspective. But depending on how high the rod in the company goes, and what other skeletons are in the closet, and how much media attention is on the case, like there's so many factors to consider here because there are reasons why companies would not go down that path. Um, and and you're right, the the result is something that maybe uh, you could sue the company over and prove that it's a biased kind of uh, investigation if it's done by internal HR. Um, and in that case, that that's a risk. And so maybe you do bring in a third party. But I think that's not always the risk. And companies are frequently in situations, unfortunately, where um, they want to keep an investigation isolated because there might be very senior people involved and it could upend the entire company. Um, so I, I, I'm saying this sort of on a PR perspective. I think it's just for any rot to be rooted out and taken out uh, and for that reform in the company if it's necessary. That's my personal view. But if I'm asked to provide PR advice, uh, obviously in that case, you want to limit damage to the company as much as possible while resolving the issue. And so I think the the, the advice would be a little more nuanced in that case. Yeah. And, and I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Two sort of two quick points. The first point is that you know, when I say external investigation, I don't mean public. I mean, obviously, the contents of that investigation should be kept under wraps and should be, you know, largely private and internal for the purposes of, of the company and the specific investigation. Should be um, is different. In this day and age where we can, you know, send PDFs around the world in an instant, it's really hard to keep that stuff completely. It just takes one person leaking it for it to end up being out in the news. Well, well, look, and, and, and I, I, I don't deny that. What I can say is someone who as someone who conducts workplace investigations, I mean, my reputation is largely tied to you know, my keeping quiet about these things and ensuring that that information does not get out. And that's consistent with any decent workplace investigator. No, for sure. Yeah, no, I I don't think it's coming from the from the lawyer. Oftentimes, it's someone in the company who has an axe to grind with somebody who's named in the investigation. Uh, There's there's often internal leaks of that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Well, and, and then, then the second point, Cam, is, you know, often you're dealing with smaller companies that don't have the resources for an external investigation because they're expensive. They're very, very expensive. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things that the employer can do to ensure that the process is thorough, above board, 
and transparent, right? So if someone brings forth these sorts of allegations regarding misconduct on the part of an employee, provide the employee with the allegations, provide it to them in writing so they have an opportunity to to review, to respond, whatever the allegations are. Sit down, speak with them, give them an opportunity to present their side, their, their perspective on what transpired, what happened. I mean, there are ways that you can do this above board internally through, through um, employees of the company, through HR. You don't need to to use a third party investigator. I don't want to suggest that that's the only successful and appropriate way to address these issues. Um, it can be a helpful way, but there are certainly ways to do it internally as well. Show your support to the PR and Law podcast by making a one time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. So this, uh, in the past couple of weeks, I had uh, a meeting with uh, Simon Murphy uh, over at Edelman, and we had Simon on the show uh, a couple of episodes ago, uh, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes to that if you want to have a listen. He's with Edelman uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, but we had a discussion really about uh, companies creating content and um, reaching out to stakeholders, be them customers or um, shareholders or suppliers or vendors or uh, staff, whomever they they might be, and sort of the the best ways and what the latest trends are um, in trying to put that together. And, you know, one of the interesting trends, Ewan, that I think companies are moving towards is getting away from news releases as a way to share information. And I, I actually looked online for some some numbers around this, and I, there's not many out there, actually. I think this is something that's, it's not brand new now, but I think we're heading in this direction. And I think there's been some movement on it. And I think one of the examples is Microsoft, which has really moved away from news releases uh, for things that, that they do. And even in the role that I've got now with the company I'm with now, Tencent, um, it's sort of a similar situation where we're moving towards that um, because it's often quite uh, effective uh, to use other means. And there's some some interesting uh, numbers around this that I want to mention. So I think first off is, you know, 89% of Americans get their news online. So right there, I think people are very comfortable, very, you know, they, they, they know where to go to, to get information. And consumers don't usually read news releases either because they're written in a certain way, you know, that's a little bit more, a little bit more formal. So anyway, um, there was one test of this done a couple of years ago, and I will put a, a, a link in the show notes. And basically, the, a person decided to publish a blog post and then also publish a press release uh, and to see how these two things performed. And so it was pushed out on uh, a company's blog. And I think it was after a week, it had 2,003 shares uh, and an estimated 6,000 to 30,000 views. That's a big, big span there, but it's a a little bit difficult to get a a firm number. Uh, The press release had 842 shares and an estimated 300 to 1,400 views. So it was just a fraction uh, of what the blog post was able to, to, to obtain. But the news release was picked up by uh, a ma- uh, uh, business magazine. And the article that came out of that had 233 shares and 200 to 900 views. So even with that included, 
it was double. The impact was double by publishing a blog post uh, instead of a press release. Um, and so I, I don't know if this is something that you've come across you and even in, in, in your firm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, I've definitely dealt with some cases in the past where when the two sides of litigation have reached some sort of settlement, there's a discussion about, well, how do we disseminate this message because it's it's a big enough case such that we know that it's attracted press and um, and press attention and we need to convey a message somehow. How do you go about doing that? And again, you know, I think you know the legal market is still very old school and traditional in 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 that regard, such that press releases. Um, they uh, are often still insisted upon because it's deemed to sort of be an official statement as issued by the company that can readily be picked up by press. Um, okay. So, so I, that's yeah, an interesting, I, I, that's an interesting definition. Um, and this is something that I think, I mean, I think I felt this intuitively uh, over the last several years, which is because we're not faxing news releases to reporters like we used to, uh, or to newspapers where they sort of look at the news releases and determine what they're going to write about. And news releases go on websites. Basically, that's it, unless you want to send it out through something like PR Newswires, which is always an option um, as well. But you just said it's a, it's a specific statement from the company that's credible and it's published and can be picked up by news media. All of that's also true for a blog or an article. And I think this is partially conceptual because it's getting people to think because the distinction between these is vanishing because whether it is a, a blog, an article or a, a press release, it's all being published basically on the same website, maybe even the same section. So what is the difference then? You know, <laughs> it's a great question. It, it kind of disappears. And so then you look at it and go, what does better? Because press releases, uh, when people write press releases, they tend to follow a traditional style. It's a little more formal, a little more corporate, which, yeah, we, I mean, companies have been doing for 100 years. So that's not new. But when you write a blog, potentially, it can be a little bit more persuasive. There's a little more room for style. There's a little more room um, for creativity. And it's those that end up, when you, when you put a blog and a news release head to head, and if it's a similar subject, the blog does better almost every time. And there's no reason reporters wouldn't pick up uh, what's in a blog or comments in a blog and publish them uh, any more than they would a news release. Well, but so to that point, Cam, I mean, is there any harm in just doing both? I mean, that you have sort of a short, um, pithy news release that's, you know, kind of elaborated upon in a longer blog post. So I don't advise that because if you have a story, if you have a point of view or an announcement or something to say, you, you you should only really say it once on your website rather than uh, a bunch of places. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you should only mention this in one place. But I think you've got to have one key page where people go to. And maybe that is an index page on a mini website, or maybe it is a mini website, or a press release, or a blog. But you want somewhere to point people to that's easy to remember, easy to get to, and they can go to. Now, one thing that you know I've done in the past is you, you may write a news release on uh, an official announcement or a partnership or an MOU or something like that and write a blog, but 
at a different perspective or looking at a, you know, one part of that announcement that you want to expand upon. Um, so they're different. I mean, they're related, they're, they, they support each other, but if one goes to one or the other, it's, it's also okay as well. And I think, you know, one way to do this, and, you know, we used to do this a lot when I was at the exchange is we, we would issue a press release, uh, on some big news and basically wait to see how the media coverage was, you know, what was the perspective? What were the, what were the critics saying? What were the sort of financial analysts saying? And maybe three or four or five days later, we'd publish a blog that addressed those issues. And in that way, it was kind of a double whammy as well, because we had the, the, the news release and then, and then the blog post. And again, they were complimentary, but they didn't repeat themselves. Uh, and, and that was quite effective for us. Oh, that's actually really, really fascinating. So you you can sort of test the waters with a with a, a short pithy press release, and then sort of clean it up based on any of, and address any of the sort of criticism that you face following the commentary. That's really, really smart. Yeah, that's 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 one way to 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 do it. But I mean, I think we should mention the differences here. Really, like a press release is much more formal, as I mentioned. Uh, the messaging is more tight or tighter and, and controlled, or a blog post is, I don't want to say it's informal, because especially if something's coming from the company, it has to be professional. So when I say informal, it doesn't mean you're dropping in slang necessarily, or emojis, but, um, you know, something that's, that's a little more persuasive, a little more article style, I guess. And then a press release is obviously planned, um, usually, at least at good companies, kind of well, well in advance. Um, and blog posts should be too, but I think you can pull them together uh, faster in the sense that if there is a big industry trend or industry event or something that's happened in your field, maybe you want to opine about that. Maybe your company wants to express its view. Um, and so something like that would be perfect um, for a blog post. Um, and then again, a press release and a blog are both sent really from a company perspective. Um, although a blog could be from a personal perspective. I've mentioned on the show several times that our, our CEO at the, the Stock Exchange of Hong Kong had a, a personal blog that did very well. Um, and I can tell you directly always far better than our news releases did when you looked at the, at the numbers. And it makes sense. It makes sense. It's, it's well-written. It's compelling. It's, it's from him. It's the CEO. And so, you know, I have heard other communications people tell me that like, yeah, but reporters aren't going to, aren't going to quote a blog. Like they're not going to, you know, write quotes of that in the, in the FT or the wall street journal, but they did. And oftentimes not, not, that day or maybe not the next day but those articles were logged and maybe six months from from then uh there'd be you know an article on dual class shares and they would drop in a quote from the chief executive that he published on his blog so it might not be immediate uh but it's certainly certainly valuable uh to do that um and then last point i wanted to make you and a press release really is objective should be factual complete uh, direct, um, whereas I think a blog does have more room. And I mentioned you can focus on one aspect. If, if, if you wanted to, you could do a blog in lieu of a press release. But like I said, you can also do them to support each other, um, where, where the, the blog can deal with a specific area or specific sort of function of, of that, that release. So, you know, I, I raised this today because I, I sense this is changing already. I think Microsoft sort of moving in this direction is a big step. Uh, I know that we're sort of moving more this way. It's not about getting rid of press releases. I think press releases do have a purpose. Uh, but I think 
to a lot of senior people, if you say blog, uh, they're going to still, I mean, a lot of the, the very senior people in companies are obviously older folks who didn't really go through the, the blog revolution. And so to them, it still seems like something, you know, university students might, might be doing, um, but they are valuable. They're very valuable from a communications perspective. And so I, I definitely recommend companies take a look at that and take a look at the opportunities there. Yeah, it almost feels like we we need a new word for blog because <laughs> it, it it is it is very misleading in many regards that it's it's some sort of elementary, um, you know, pimple faced teenager sitting in a dark room in his basement just yeah. pounding out text yeah. on some some that they they choose to opine on, and that's really not where we're at with blogs anymore. They they really are um, in in many cases you know, the, the, the creme de la creme of quality content that's out there um, such that, yeah, maybe we need to come up with a new term uh, for what to call them. Yeah. And I mean, again, the example of where I am now, I mean, we launched a column, basically like a column called Tencent Perspectives. And um, so the, the word blog doesn't appear anywhere, but we're publishing articles there. And, um, you know, there, there are articles on things happening in the company, cool initiatives, things that never, you know, make it into the media. Um, but, but we treat them like news releases, you know, when they're published, we'll still push them out. We'll still send them to reporters. We'll still circulate them, um, because they're, they're still valuable. Um, and I guess that's the, the key message that I'm trying to make here, which is these distinctions between, you know, this is a blog and this is a press release and this is an announcement and this is an MOU or this is like, it, it kind of evaporates when, you, when everything's going to the same place and being shared the same way. And actually, that's freeing if you look at it that way, because it does mean that you have a lot of room to try new things. Um, and, and whether it's yeah, a blog on your website or just doing you know, graphics on, on, on your social media channels. I think you know, one opportunity that, that companies often miss, which is so simple, is you know, when, when, when there's quarterly uh, financial results and reporting putting a, a graphic together with your, you know, your, your, your revenue or your earnings per share or whatever it might be on the graphic with an arrow up and your logo and throwing that on social media. Um, it's a very quick thing to do, but it's so much better than just writing a line of text in your financial statement section. <laughs> so like, there's a lot of easy, easy tricks like this that can, that can get a lot more coverage and that are more effective often than even submitting something to, to something like PR Newswires. Right. Well, and you make a good point about just dissemination, right? And reach and the idea of backlinks and rankings and Google that, you know, the blog can really command a presence for a long period of time, long after, you know, the purpose of the the press release or the initial statement has sort of faded or fallen by the wayside, right? Um, yeah. And the other thing, too, is if people are going to your website, it's to get information, some kind of information from your company. So they're coming to you also. Like there's obviously the promotional angle, which you just mentioned. But if people are coming to your site, you do want to provide them with really high quality content to demonstrate who you are, what your values are, what you do as a business. Um, all of these kind of things that can make a difference uh, compared to you know, something that's overly corporate, for example, uh, you know, when you land on a website. Right, right, right. Yeah. Great point. So, yeah. So that's, that's, that's my, my, my main takeaway, uh, is, is also think about your, your comms team. I know a lot of communications teams have, uh, either a content creation group. Um, you know, we're not doing that at the moment where I am now, but I I've done that in the past 
And it, it is good to think of it that way. And it's more than just writing content. Uh, you know, when I was at the exchange, I hired a, a graphics person and a computer developer. <laughs> and so these things are very non-traditional roles for a comms shop. I mean, neither of them are good writers or, or knew anything about finance per se. Um, but, but they were able to give us an ability that was quite high profile. Uh, when you have a graphic designer on staff, they can put together an um, annual report, uh, uh, you know, cover. They can do banners on the websites. They can do photo. They can do graphic. Like having somebody on staff doing that, it, it's very visible that your customers and your stakeholders see that stuff when they go to your social channel or they go to your website. Um, and so that's, that's valuable. I mean, it's often overlooked. In fact, it's almost always overlooked, <laughs> that kind of a capability. And then a developer on hand helps with microsites. They can help adding functionality to your website or apps, or maybe they create a WeChat pro mini program or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, these are all ways that you can incorporate these new tools and these new ways of disseminating information into your comms plan and make use of them to reach more people or reach more relevant people in your audience. Right. So think outside the box. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. All right. What do you got, Ewan? Well, I, I read a great long form article, Cam, and there was another, there was a follow-up to it as well that we can point to. Um, now, if there are any children listening, parents, guardians, you might want to hit the the mute button, the pause button um, before I proceed. The The title of this article, this was a, a Nicholas Kristoff piece in the New York Times, Cam, mm -hmm. titled uh, The Children of Pornhub. Why oh, does no. Canada allow, why does Canada allow this company to profit off videos of exploitation and assault? And I don't know if you if you knew this I, I certainly didn't cam but Pornhub is effectively based in Montreal here here in Canada I had um, no idea yeah so the company is owned by MindGeek which is a, a you know private pornography conglomerate um, and while it's sort of nominally based in in Luxembourg for tax reasons it's a private company run from Montreal and is led by Ferris Anton and David Tassillo who are both Canadians um, now, yeah, so this is a really, really interesting story and it, it deals with Pornhub and its hosting of rape videos, revenge, pornography, child pornography, spy cam videos, racist and misogynistic content. And, you know, what Christoph is really sort of getting at, he's not, you know, he's not drawing some sort of moral position or taking a moral position with regard to pornography. I mean, on the contrary, he's saying, look, you know, I think Pornhub serves a function and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with its presence on the internet. What is wrong is that there's a lack of monitoring. And as a result, all of these very, very grossly inappropriate and criminal videos are being posted on the site. And they're very, very easy to track down as he sort of demonstrates um, through different search, um, search criteria. Uh, he interviews a number of individuals, uh, notably young women who got caught up in videos that were posted without their knowledge. Wow. And, you know, just that internet effect of how it's, um, dramatically impacted their lives. One woman in particular, you know, she, she dropped out of school. She became addicted to drugs and alcohol. And before long she was, you know, living in her car. Um, wow. yeah, it's, still, it's a really, really crazy story. And some of, I mean, some of the statistics here, Cam are just 
insane. Uh, you know, Pornhub attracts 3.5 billion visits a month, more than Netflix, more than Yahoo, more than Amazon. It, it, it gets 3 billion ad impressions a day. It's the 10th most visited website in the world. And 1.36 million new hours of video are uploaded every year um, to Pornhub. Wow. So, wow, yeah, just really just sort of mind boggling numbers. And, and again, you know, it's one of those stories, Cam, where you, you really see the power of good investigative journalism. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to leave on a, on an unhappy note. There is a happy follow-up because Christoph did a follow-up piece. He doesn't um, normally uh, do investigative journalism though. He's a columnist. Yeah. Well, you, you, you should, you should look into it. Cause he definitely, he definitely did some digging, um, for, for this story and the follow-up piece, which was released, I believe on December 10th. Um, and it was sort of a good news follow-up. So following his, the release of his story and some of the recommendations he had for changes that Pornhub could implement, Pornhub effectively came out and said, yeah, we're, we're going to try and we're going to try and do better. Whether or not that will actually occur, um, we'll see. And as Christoph pointed out, you know, Pornhub is just one of many, many, many sites um, where you can access this kind of content. Um, but the other good news is, is that, you know, I don't want to give it away, but there was, uh, you know, one of the young women that he profiles um, was given some some great support from people who had read the initial post. And anyway, check check this out. It's just wow. a really, really crazy, crazy story. You know, I'm not surprised by the traffic numbers to Pornhub or the page views uh, or anything like that. I think, um, I mean, these sites are, are hugely popular. Uh, but I think the issue of things like revenge porn, I think, are absolutely kind of the most tragic issues of today and of the sort of technology revolution. And I mean, I think we've seen a lot of, of the dark side of technology over the last four or five years. I mean, even pertaining to things like elections and mass shootings and things like that. Um, but, but this is particularly gross, I guess, for lack of a better term and vile, uh, because it is taking oftentimes, I know I've seen articles in the past that talk about, you know, there are, girls who uh, are targeted this way. They have no desire to be on the site. They don't agree to be on the site. But once a video is uploaded, even if that site pulls it down, it could have been copied 500,000 times already and be everywhere else. I mean, it's a, it's a whack-a-mole. It's very difficult uh, to get something pulled down once it's up. And it's a, it's a, it's a real tragedy, I think. Ab- absolutely. And that's one of the issues that's addressed in, in the article that Pornhub permits its users to download content. So, you know, if you've downloaded a particular video to your point, it doesn't matter if the site subsequently removes it because there are users out there that have that content that can be uploaded back to the site or, or elsewhere, um, such that, you know, for a lot of young women, they can never get away from this kind of material being out in the public domain. And, you know, you think about the long-term implications of that mentally, psychologically, professionally, um, it's just really, really horrific and tragic. And, you know, in this one, one of the women, it, it was, it was all relatively innocent, right? You know, a boyfriend asked her, 
um, to send him a, a video. She did. She subsequently sent a few more. He sent it to a friend. That friend uploaded it. And, and you know, and seemingly overnight, everyone in her social circle had access to that content. And it just snowballed from there. Yeah. And general advice here for everybody, don't send something digitally that you wouldn't want posted on Reddit or anywhere else, because it's, you can't control what happens to your digital content. It's a high level of trust that you have to have in a person to send something. Uh, and then even then, who knows if that relationship changes down the line, uh, it's, it's just a very, very risky thing to do, uh, in, in, in many different ways, uh, not just, not just porn, but you know, you and the, the one thing I want to talk about, I guess is sort of, sort of related to this. Uh, but it's the, the Netflix documentary four part documentary series on Dominic Strauss Kahn. And you may recall that he was the head of the IMF. Uh, he was likely to become president of France. An election was coming up, and he was a rival of uh, Nicolas Sarkozy at the time, back in 2011. Uh, and he was accused of attempted rape and sexual assault of a maid at the Sofitel Hotel in Manhattan. This was in 2011. Uh, there is not footage from the room, but there's CCTV footage of the maid coming out, Dominic Strauss-Kahn coming out quickly, getting in a taxi and heading to the airport. Uh, you know, police were called to figure out what happened, uh, and they ended up actually uh, getting Strauss-Kahn at the Air France lounge at JFK Airport just before heading back to France. And it's quite an interesting documentary series because I think if uh, I, I just finished it tonight, it's a four part series. I think the story is decently well known. It was very high profile at the time uh, in 2011, but this is the first deep dive into his background and what happened. Ultimately he was uh, the, the charges were dropped uh, by the, by the district attorney in, in Manhattan. So he, he did sort of get away scot-free here, but it actually goes into many other complaints about his behavior uh, and some of the things that he had done and some of the people that he had allegedly hurt. And I got to tell you, I don't want to give it away either, but there is an interview with him, clips of an interview with him towards the end of the documentary. And he genuinely doesn't understand what is the big deal. And I think when, when people talk about sort of entitlement and a power imbalance, it's really made clear in, in parts of this documentary and especially at the end, uh, the fact that there is an expectation of what is his or some other high profile person, what, what they're entitled to uh, and what they should be able to get away with without any trouble. And it's actually shocking uh, and it's also very disappointing because it shows this was just before the Me Too stuff broke out. And some people have said this was kind of the first Me Too case uh, a few years earlier. Um, but it, but it, it really is shocking how far we have to go uh, after watching this. Yeah, it's, a lot of these people are seemingly walking around in echo chambers, right? They, mm -hmm. they just it's like a reality distortion field. They don't hear or see anything outside of it. Um, and, and when you watch interviews of these individuals, they wholeheartedly believe their own, their own narrative, um, to the exclusion of any, any, anything that might run contrary. It is sort of a fascinating case study. I haven't seen this, but I'm, I'm, very, very much looking forward to watching it. It's called Room 2806, The Accusation. 
uh, and it was just released on Netflix, uh, well, I guess a week, week or two ago. So it's, it's quite new. So yeah, definitely, definitely check it out. You know, there's one part at the very end where, yeah, Richard Quest of CNN is, is asking him, you know, has he learned anything going through this process? And he said he's, and I'm paraphrasing, not quoting directly. He said he's learned that when you've become in the public eye or you're a senior person in, in politics, that there's different rules that apply to you, that something a regular person could get away with, you can't get away with when you're in politics. And it was such a revealing answer because I would argue the exact opposite is actually the case. Uh, but yeah, right. It, it's, right. <laughs> yeah, it's really quite, quite incredible. It'll be quite maddening too. Uh, if this is an issue you care about, it's quite maddening that, that, um, that this is, this is still happening. Anything else you want, you want to add before we wrap this up? No, that that's it. That's it, Kim. Let's do another it. week. Good another times. week. Good of, times. Uh, we're, we're getting finally, we're almost at the end of this year. Um, we'll be able to put it behind us soon. Um, yeah. yeah. Here's well, hoping for a better 2021. I think everybody wishes that. Um, anyway, yeah, thank you so much for joining us again this week. Don't miss a show. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels and follow us on social media, as always, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the account name PR Law Podcast. And our newsletter, if you'd like to receive that as well, is at prlawpodcast.club. Just drop your email in there. We will not spam you. We'll just uh, let you know when new episodes drop. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.